It is a pleasure to share God's word with you today, and it is always a pleasure to share God's word, and I'm so happy to be able to do that with you this morning. We will be in Isaiah chapter 55 and 56, so uh, turn there if you would, and we will soon take a look at these verses. Uh, You know, I've been away from the Pacific Northwest for a few years. Uh, I've missed a few Memorial Days, Memorial Day weekends, but it turns out this is exactly how I remember it. Memorial Day in the Pacific Northwest. Yep. Well, it is also kind of a gateway, isn't it? This is like that last holiday leading into the summer season. But it's not just the summer season. It's invitation season. Invitation season. How many, now don't answer out loud, but how many different graduations are you getting an invite to? Weddings are you getting an invite to? Because if you're going to get married in the Northwest, at least outside... You've got like a three-week window, and even then it's a little iffy, but it's in the summer sometime, right? Uh, And invitations to other things, like day camp, of course. We want to be a part of that. Um, An invitation to great ministries like we see here with Johnny and friends. And you see all these invitations, and you see your summer, and somehow you have to figure out what you're going to do with them. Like, you can't possibly go to all the things that you're invited to go to. So how do you decide what you're going to go to? Again, don't answer out loud. (laughs) But it might be things like, you know, there's a wedding. Is there a reception? What does the reception look like? Is there a meal? You know, Um, who is getting married? How well do I know them? Who's graduating? How well do I know them? Um, How many people are going to be there? Where is it located? There's endless things that we try to filter through. What am I doing that day? Where are we going? Man, it's summer season, but it gets busy, doesn't it? Well, today, we're talking about uh, an invitation. Uh, We're talking about an invitation to come that God is extending. It's an invitation to come to those who are thirsty, to those who are hungry, an invitation whereby we will be satisfied. And we see that here in his word. Last week, we looked at the, the certainty and extent of God's restoration. He's a God that forgives and covers our shame And he is glorified, and he shares that glory with us. And today we see uh, an invitation to Israel and to everyone to come to the Lord. Certainly an invitation for Israel to return to the Lord. And we want to take a look at that today, and we will see that this invitation extends to Israel and to the whole world. I want to read... Um, Isaiah chapter 55 with you. We'll be in 55 and 56, but I want to read Isaiah 55 for you right now, starting with verse 1. Isaiah writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. A leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. 
Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth with singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Wonderful passage of the word of God that we have before us today. The first thing that we see here is this invitation to come. And you will look through this, these first three verses here and you will see a lot of imperatives. You see come mentioned several times. We see buy um, without money and without price. We see listen diligently, delight yourselves, incline your ear, hear uh, these are invitations, but they're also imperatives. So these aren't polite invitations. Um, come if you'd like to. Um, come if, 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 you, if you think you would. Um, it, is, it is God calling his people and saying, come, come, I'm calling you. This is important. Come to me, come to me. He is asking them to, to come uh, to buy and eat without cost. And he's saying to them, why spend money on food that does not ultimately satisfy? First of all, they're buying and eating without cost. Now, we know that nothing is ever free, right? There is nothing without cost. But we've been studying Isaiah. We know the one who paid the price. You just have to look over to Isaiah 53, and you see that it is Christ who paid the price so that we can come to him and so that his people can return to him. It was without price. It is an invitation to come. But contrasted with that, he says, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and you labor for that which is not satisfied? Even though Christ has paid the price, there's a tendency in us to want to seek and get things which we can earn, to try to satisfy ourselves by our own works. And this is part of the curse. This goes back to the garden when Adam and Eve decided that they would be like God and they could do his work themselves. And we still try to do that in our sinful nature now. But what we see is those things that we seek that are apart from God, that we seek in this life, that we seek in this earth apart from him, are things that don't satisfy. When we lived in Russia for the last four years, there were some foods that you get here quite easily that we could not get easily there. Some of these foods would arrive in packages that people sent to us in the mail and in suitcases from people like your pastor who visited us. Uh, but other things, uh, there were some things that we could get, but they were kind of expensive. So we didn't get them very much. There were no fast food restaurants where we were, with the exception of some subways. There actually were no McDonald's on the island or anything like that. And it was actually very healthy for us. <laughs> We had a, a probably a much better diet when we were there, and we walked quite a bit more too. So it was a healthy place for us to live. But sometimes you want to enjoy those things, and so there were times where we did. And one of those things is potato chips. 
Uh, they just cost too much for me to spend money on them when we were there. But there's certain times where, where you need to have them. Now, one of the things that I made sure that we have when we were there was access to football, all right? I made sure that I could watch the NFL while I was in Russia. There was a small price, but I just said, hey, this is my birthday and Christmas present, and, uh, and we got it every year because I had to be connected, and I had to make sure that my kids were connected with the culture, you know. And so when we got to Super Bowl Sunday, which actually there on the other side of the dateline is Super Bowl Monday, right? So if you can imagine the Super Bowl starts um, over there at about 9 or 10 a.m. Monday morning, uh, which was fine for me because I worked from home, uh, but we would, we would do the American thing. Hey, we're going to have our own family Super Bowl party. And so my kids look forward to that, especially my oldest son, Daniel, because there's one food that he loved that I would get usually only in that time. It was chips. He loves potato chips. And so we would go and buy chips. And not only would I get chips, I would tell him he could eat as much as he wanted. Now, Daniel likes football, and he tracks the brackets and everything and was having fun watching all of the games. He gets into it. He cries when some teams lose. He's a passionate fan. But when you ask him what he loves about Super Bowl Sunday, he'll say, the potato chips. I love the chips. And every time we were there, this process repeated itself. I would get the chips. Daniel would be very excited about the chips. He would consume large amounts of chips. And later, he would be sick. <laughs> And then he would forget about it, and then the next year he would do the same thing all over again. And it's interesting, when you don't eat this junk food we have in this culture, you know, when it hits your stomach, your stomach says, what in the world are you doing to me? <laughs> like, what is this? You know, you look at the bag and you see the ingredients, you understand there's not much nutritional value in this stuff. And your stomach kind of knows that because that's how God made it. And so you throw this stuff down that has no nutritional value, and your stomach goes, oh, boy, I'm just not sure that I, this agrees with me. And it, it sends you a message. And, uh, and so this process would, re, would repeat itself. Uh, but I think of that when I look at this passage. When we talk about food that does not satisfy, we're talking about not just food that does not taste good. I mean, the chips taste good going down, but it doesn't satisfy. What does this mean? Well, it doesn't fill you up even more. It has no nutritional value. If you eat just that for very long, your, your lifespan is going to be cut short. So why do you seek the food that has no value, that doesn't satisfy when you can have good food with good nutritional content? I know this is a conversation we have with our kids all the time, but it's a conversation that the Lord was having with his people there because we, like them, often seek things that don't satisfy. We don't seek things that satisfy. Now, what is it that satisfies? Look at, look at some of the imperatives here where he says, listen and incline your ear. Listen um, to what? Uh, listen to me. Uh, incline your ear and come to me. What he's speaking of is his word. What is it that satisfies? It is found in his word. Come and hear and listen to what I have to say, the Lord is saying. This will satisfy your soul. This will give you the nourishment that you need in order to live. Not only will your soul be satisfied, but it will be eternally satisfied. Um, he says in verse 3, Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, 
an everlasting covenant. And indeed, Jesus initiated the new covenant, which you can read about later uh, in Jeremiah 31, where his word would be written on the hearts of his people, and he would forgive his people of their sin and their iniquity. He also speaks of of David in this passage, my steadfast and sure love for David. And you remember that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a covenant was made with David, whereby um, David's relative, David's son in the distant future, would sit on the throne of David eternally. And we understand and know that this refers to the Messiah. The Messiah will reign. The Messiah will reign forever. And so when he is talking about come and hear and be satisfied, it is looking to not just now, but the satisfaction of all eternity because of turning our ear to the word of the Lord. We see in verse 4, behold, I make him a witness to the peoples. And you know, as we've gone through Isaiah, you have to pay attention when you hear Um, when you hear these uh, pronouns and you hear the change and everything like that, because him, who does this refer to? David, well, actually it refers to the son of David who had sat on his throne, the Messiah. I have made a Messiah, which is Jesus, a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. There will come a day when he will reign. And when he reigns, the nations will come to him from, from every corner of the earth And this is in the future of the nation of Israel and is still to come. But we see the call to come, to come and be satisfied now and to come and be satisfied in all eternity. We also see here uh, an invitation to seek the Lord in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And our, to our God, um, and for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah calls on Israel to seek the Lord while he may be found and turn from their wicked ways. If they do, he will pardon their sins and restore their place of honor. So we see here, seek the Lord while he may be found. You don't know which breath may be your last breath. And after that, it's too late. So seek the Lord now. Don't delay. There is an urgency to this but also a call for the wicked to forsake his way, uh, to turn from his wickedness so that God will have compassion and pardon him. This is repentance. And we'll talk more about repentance next week when Pastor Jay preaches. But turning from your sin and turning to the Lord is basically what repentance is. You know, in Russia, when someone is saved, they don't call it being saved. They say they repented. They won't ask you, when were you saved? They'll ask you, when did you repent? And a lot of this goes back to their history of not really believing it's real until they see the works in your life. And there is a period of time, longer than our period of time often, between when someone repents and they examine them, and then eventually they allow them to be baptized because they agree that they have truly turned to the Lord. Well, there is a call to us to repent as well, to turn from our sin and turn to God. And when that happens, we see that um, God will have compassion on him and he will pardon him. Looking at verses eight and nine, these are probably familiar verses to you. Uh, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
There's different places where I've seen these verses. One of the most common places for me to see these is in a doctrinal statement. Anytime someone is crafting a doctrinal statement and they're talking about the holiness of God and how he is separate and different from us, these verses are usually referenced because God is not like us. Think of the image of Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah saw the Lord. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he was on his face. He realized his sin and he said, woe is me because he understood the holiness of God. And we remember how his sins were forgiven. So we see this and it's indication that God is holy and he is not like us. And there is this chasm between him and us and only Christ can bring peace because Christ paid the price for our sin and because of that, our sins are forgiven. So it certainly shows us the difference between us and God and the need for a savior, the need for his forgiveness. Another time where I often see these verses is when we're contemplating God's direction in our lives. I've done a little bit of that lately myself in all of our transitions. And we try to understand it and try to make sense of it. And we come back to verses like this and we remind ourselves that our thoughts are not God's thoughts. He thinks differently than we, doesn't he? He does things in ways that we would never do them. And that's actually a good thing. His plan is different than ours. But in the context of this passage, what, is the, what are these verses linked to? It's linked to the previous verse where it talks about a God of compassion and a God who abundantly pardons. What is he saying is different between us and God in this context? It is that God is a God of compassion and he is a God who pardons sin. And that is not us. We do not behave in that way. Sometimes we, we will, in our own sin, try to reason that, that that gap between us and God maybe isn't that big, that Jesus had to do something for us because we weren't where we should be, but we don't understand where we truly stand as sinners before God. We're not only sinners before God, but we are enemies of God. James 4.4, 4, James makes it very clear that someone who desires to be friends with the world is an enemy with God. So we are enemies with God, and yet, and yet, he sent his son to die for us, and yet his son took the wrath of the Father so that we could be reconciled. I've thought a little bit about enemies lately as I've watched this war in Ukraine, and there was a picture the other day that captured me. It was a picture of, of a man who was standing by what was, once was his home. His home just looked like a pile of kindling now. There was nothing left of it. They said that he had lost five family members. But he was at least happy that his mug he was holding in his hand was still in one piece. And beside him was a bucket of, of potato sprouts, which he would have been planting in the ground at this time. His home was gone. He lost family. He had a mug, a bucket of potato sprouts. Now, how easy do you think it is for that man to forgive his enemies? Can any of us blame him if he says, I struggle a little bit to do that? How would you feel if you were in his place? Now, imagine that, that we before God are like enemies before God. And yet God is not like us. Because whereas we would struggle to ever, ever forgive our enemies... God forgives. 
God abundantly pardons. This is the greatness of our God. We look at this and we say, my thoughts are not your thoughts, Lord. Your ways are not my ways. Praise God they are not. Otherwise, I would never be saved. Praise God we have a God of compassion who abundantly pardons because of what the Son has done. Verses 10 and 11 are also uh, verses that perhaps are familiar to you. It says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water of the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, uh, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is certain. What he says happens. Nothing that he desires to do does not happen. These words, these verses speak to the certainty of God's word. And the image he uses is like water. We're really familiar with that here, right? We know what water does. Well, in Israel, it's a, it's a very dry land, and it's not a place where they have like the Nile River flowing through that they can depend on. They are dependent on, on the water. They're dependent on the snow that caps in the highest mountains and feeds the streams. If they don't have this, their crops will not grow, especially this was true in the days of Isaiah. And so they knew that relationship that when there is water that comes down, when there is snow that falls in the mountains, then that causes the crops to grow. And they have bread, they have food, they have everything they need. And the picture here is God is showing that the word of God is like water. How so? Well, water always does what water is supposed to do. If you take a plant that is dry and you pour water in it, guess what? It's not dry anymore, right? I know various ones of us struggled to raise plants. Um, We will talk about that. But, you know, when you pour water into a plant and go, huh, for some reason, it's still dry, even though I poured a whole bunch of water. No, water does what water is supposed to do. You're really hot. You're thirsty. You're dying. You drink a, a big jug of water, right? Does anything happen? Do you go, huh, well, that's strange. I'm still thirsty. No, water, water um, takes care of that. Water fulfills what you need. Water does what water is supposed to do. Water does what God designed water to do. God also gives his word. The same person who created water and designed the molecules of it also gives us his word. And the assurance here is just like water always does what water is supposed to do, God's word will always accomplish what God's word says it will do. Why? Because it comes from the almighty creator, God. And he is in control of all things. And so the promises we see in Isaiah are sure to come true because it is God's word and you can count on it. When we are promised forgiveness for our sins, it will come true because it is God's word. You can count on it. When we are promised eternal life in the word of God, it will come true because it is God's word and you can count on it just like you can count on water to do what water is supposed to do. You can depend on it. Verses 12 and 13 point to a joy that we can have. We can rejoice in God doing what he says he will do. You will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth with singing. Now, this does look to a day in the future where the curse will be reversed and things will not happen in the same way they have since the curse. 
You see that the briar and the thorn are no longer there. If you were speaking to our culture, he'd probably say the blackberry bushes are non-invasive and they don't have thorns, right? But you still have the fruit. That would be wonderful. Uh, But we have those things because of the curse. But that will all be reversed. This is God's future. This is God's plan. This is what he will do. And it is all creation rejoicing one day in what God will do. But there is a sense in which we rejoice right now when we see God's word at work, don't we? I love baptisms because I love seeing how God changes lives and hearing those stories when people are baptized. I was here last year uh, in the summer for the baptism in the park here at Sunset. Probably easily my favorite event that Sunset does all year. There was a man uh, who I met in the far northern part of Sakhalin Island. That's like a 12-hour drive. Um, Pastor Alexi and I went to the far northernmost church, a town of 20,000 people that has two tiny churches. One of them about 30 or 40 people, one of them about 20. We were in the church of 20. We were there for a Saturday having a meal with these dear people. And one one of the ladies came and she brought a friend. She teaches English in the school. And she's been tutoring this man who's a friend of her brother. And she told him, there's a native speaker coming to my church. Do you want to talk to him? And he was really eager to learn English. He never went to church, but he wanted to talk to a native speaker. So he came and, um, you know, we went in the kitchen and we had a conversation. And I started probing and asking questions. And I discovered that, uh, you know, you you could talk about these religious things because we're just talking English here. We're just practicing our English. We're in church. Let's practice some religious terms. I discovered he's very open to God. And the people in this church discovered it too. And, and he was there for Saturday. He came back on Sunday. And during that time, he probably heard the gospel about 30 times from 10 different people. Okay. I mean, he was inundated with it so much that I thought, is he going to come back? Or is he a little bit like, whoa, this is too much. But he did come back. His name is Andre. And right before I left, um, I heard that there was going to be a baptism in Oha. I wanted to go there. I wasn't able to get there. But I saw the pictures. Do you think a church of 20 people in a culture where 1% of the population are Christians, do you think they rejoice when someone comes to Christ and is baptized Oh man, they rejoiced when they saw God's word accomplished what God intended it to do and was changing this man's life. There was great rejoicing. And we can rejoice as well. Um, A call to repentance is a call to joy, uh, peace, and celebration. Um, Celebrating what God has done. What we see in verse 56, uh, we see in verse In chapter 55, the invitation to come. In 56, we see clearly who God is inviting to come. That it's not just the nation of Israel, but it is people from all of the nations. 56.1, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. He is pointing to the fact that his salvation is coming. His righteousness will be revealed. And this is through the servant that we've been talking about in the book of Isaiah. And he has promised and he is coming. 
But what he calls people to do during this time while they're waiting is to follow the Lord, to follow his ways, not because they will earn their way for for salvation, because only God pays the way for salvation, but because they love his way. They see his way. They love his way. They love the God who, who cares for them and forgives them, and they seek to follow his way. Well, among those who he calls to follow this way are the foreigner and the eunuch. And he points out in this passage that the outsider who binds himself to the Lord will be accepted as a son. The eunuch who cannot have children and cannot pass on his family name will be given an everlasting name that cannot be cut off. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. A eunuch could not pass on his name. He could not have children. And it was a place of, of shame because of that. But God removes the shame and says, I am going to give you a great name. I am going to bring you into my house and you will have my name. And this will be greater than many sons and daughters. And he gives him a place of honor. To the foreigners, the foreigners who, who come to the Lord and follow his ways, he brings them into the assembly and welcomes them to come. You see uh, verse 7 and 8, again, also familiar verses. Isaiah says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will, ga- I will gather yet others to him besides all those already gathered. So we, we see that it is God's pleasure, God's will to welcome not only his people, the nation of Israel, but all the nations to him. And this has always been God's plan. God said to Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed, right? And God is about bringing people to him. And we see this activity in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament, Now, this verse, the latter part of verse 7 might be familiar because you remember when Jesus cleansed the temple, you remember he came in in the triumphal entry, he went into the temple and he saw all the money changers who were were selling animals for sacrifices who were in the temple and he got angry and he he turned over the tables and he referenced this. He said, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the people's. There's actually a sermon that Pastor Tyler preached on this about three years ago in Matthew chapter 21. Great sermon. If you want to look at that, listen to that again, I highly recommend it. But one of the things that Pastor Tyler pointed out was what made Jesus rightfully angry was not just that this commerce was going on in the temple. That wasn't good. But where was it taking place? It was taking place in what they call the court of the Gentiles. This was a place where those who were Gentiles, um, those who, others who were perhaps unclean, were welcome to come and worship at the house of the Lord. And in this place where they were welcome to come and worship, it was crowded and overrun with tables and vendors, and there was no place for these people to worship. And Jesus was angry because of this. His house shall be called the house of prayer for all the peoples. 
It is his heart for all the peoples to worship him. And God is glorified when people of all nations and all ethnicities are bowing before him in praise. And that will be the picture that we see one day in heaven. And so this points to that fact that God is welcoming and calling in all the nations. Israel was given a special place as God's covenantal people with a mission to be light to the nations because they failed to live up to their covenant and mission. They will be dispersed and taken out of the land, but God hasn't given up on them or the mission. He will gather the dispersed of Israel and the nations. And so we see in this passage the day when all people will come before the Lord. We also see, as we look forward in the Bible, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, where Jesus says to us, go, go, go out to all the nations. Reach out to all the nations. Tell them of the good news. Make the nations my disciples. That is what he encourages us to do because his heart is for all the nations. And we still have that task today. There are people who don't speak our language There are people who look different than us. There are people uh, who we would not normally associate with who need to hear the truth of the gospel. They are right here in this culture, and they are out there in all the nations. And when we are lazy about this, we're no different than the nation of Israel that was not welcoming them to the house of prayer. We need to reach all the nations. Well, the last part of our passage today talks about Israel's irresponsible leaders, there are not good things said about these people in this passage. Um, They are called silent dogs. If you can imagine, a guard dog that doesn't bark is worth what? Nothing. Nothing. Worthless. Um, Those who love to slumber and sleep, those who eat but are never satisfied, shepherds who have no understanding, they're just thinking about themselves, and they don't even understand the people that they're watching over. Like, why is that sheep doing that? I don't know. Go ask someone else. Um, These are people who live for today. They get drunk. And uh, their appetite is for themselves. It is the complete opposite of the picture of the servant that Isaiah has been portraying. The servant who gives himself. The servant who lays down his life so that others may live. The complete opposite is this picture of the irresponsible leaders here. We, we know something about irresponsible leaders in our culture. We've seen a few of them. No, we're not alone. They've been around since the beginning of the earth. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can say we've probably been an irresponsible leader a time or two ourselves. But even more reason why we should come to the Lord, why we should come to his word Will we find the answer by putting our faith in our leaders? Will we find answers and things that satisfy by by diving into the philosophy of this world and entrenching ourselves into that? Or will we find what satisfies by following the word of the Lord and by filling ourselves with what he has to say? We are called to turn to him. Turn to him. Turn to him and be satisfied all of us, all of the nations. So I wonder where you are today in that process. Have you turned to him? Are you satisfied? Have you ever turned to him in repentance? Have you ever turned to him for salvation? As he says to us, seek him while he may be found. You don't know 
What breath might be your last breath? Don't delay. And understand um, that it does not depend on you. It depends on him, right? This is true not only for the one that is seeking him for salvation, but the one who is living in him today. Come to him. Perhaps some of us have become lazy. Perhaps we've eaten a few too many potato chips. And we need to return to that which satisfies. What are you seeking to be satisfied and filled with today? And is it truly satisfying? And if it isn't, what do you need to change about that? Are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking his word? Are you seeking to know him more? Or are you seeking those other things? It's a struggle we have as sinners who God is constantly working with, but we need to remind ourselves, don't we, to come, come, come to him, come to him who alone can satisfy, not just us, but all the nations. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. Thank you that, that you are a God who has, has invited us to come freely. Thank you for the payment of your son, Jesus, who paid the price for our sins so that we can come freely to you. Thank you for the compassion, the abundant pardon that we have for our sins through him. Thank you that we can trust your word, that it is true, that it does not return void. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be a part of what you're doing, to, to be able to reach those around us and reach the nations and invite them to come to you as well. Lord, we pray that you would help us just to rejoice as we see your word at work. Thank you for what you are doing. And Lord, we pray that, that you would be drawing us to you, keep our focus on you, help us to seek that which truly satisfies. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.